You're listening to a message from Kaleo Phoenix, a church plant in downtown Phoenix, Arizona, that creates space for people to practice the ways of Jesus together. As you may or may not know, uh, Kaleo follows the life uh, of the global liturgical church calendar. And, and so that means that uh, for, for many centuries, churches have followed seasons, they call them. And, and this season that we're in, we're about to finish on this Sunday, and it's called the season of ordinary time. And I think it's fitting that we finally get to bring that season to a close because it has been anything but ordinary So next week, we get to launch into the beginning of the church calendar, which is Advent. And and we begin again, if you will. And if you're anything like me, there's probably something in you that longs to begin again, have another try, have another chance. Well, that's what's so beautiful about just the ongoing movement of the church calendar is that we get to do that again. The downfall is that as we anticipate the coming of Jesus, we still, as we begin again, are stuck in a cycle of anticipating and waiting for the coming of Jesus. And so again, we sit here in this moment, in this time, the end of ordinary time on the cusp of Advent, and we want something to break in. I loved that we sang songs that talked about not being in a hurry and sitting in the presence of God, opening up our lives to receive what it is God wants to say to us. Because even in the midst of longing for another chance or a new beginning or something better than gathering in a courtyard with masks, we can still in this space encounter the loving presence of God. And so that's the invitation this morning or this evening. Goodness. Wow. We're going to tackle the famous parable of the sheep and the goats today. Just, just like, I, I just want you to go, hold on, have you, are you familiar with the parable of the sheep and the goats? Because my guess is most of us are. I'm going to read it to you in a second here. But I, I would guess almost all of us are forming an immediate thought if we've heard that parable before about what's going to happen in the sheep and the goats. So I want to, I want to do a couple things to keep in mind before we get there. Right, the first is this, this parable concludes Jesus's teaching life. This is the very last thing in the gospel of Matthew that he teaches to his disciples. And it happens on the Mount of Olives. And he's sitting there with his disciples. And this is like the the fifth in, in a long, robust list of teachings that takes up all of Matthew 24 and Matthew 25. And it all starts because the disciples ask Jesus this question, what sign will signal your return and the end of the age? That's what they want to know. It's like they've got these last couple days with Jesus. They don't know it's the last, but it turns out like something's happening and they know it. And they ask Jesus, what sign will signal your return in the end of the age? So now that's the framing of what we're about to hear in a moment. Secondly, anytime we encounter a parable, we have to hold intention that every parable does not form an entire system of theology. So like everything you need to know about who God is and what God is like and what it means to be his people is not encapsulated in every single parable, okay? So there's gonna be some things it teaches us and then there's going to be some things that it doesn't. And lastly, maybe more than anything, I want you to remember that the parables of the future that Jesus is telling here are actually not really about the future. He's telling them, so that you might change the way you live in the present. 
They're parables that speak to what could be or what might be to remind you of how to live now. So before we tackle that parable, let's pray that it might in fact help us practice the ways of Jesus together. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, again, we just invite you to teach us this evening. We welcome your presence in our midst, indwelled in our very beings by way of your spirit. We welcome you. We ask that you would open up our lives to receive what it is you have to teach us, what it is you have to say to us. And Lord, my prayer is that we would actually continue on the journey of transformation today, that we would be different when we walk out of these gates than when we walked in because of your very presence, because of your teaching, and because of your desire to make us into the image of your son, Jesus. I pray for myself too, Lord, that, that you just give me your words to speak, that I would, I would say things that are for you and from you, that we would make much of you and we would learn who you are and learn to love you more. It's in your name we pray, amen. All right, Matthew 25, verses 31 through 46. Now again, you have to remember that Jesus is teaching this to his disciples. It's a small group of people that are gathered with him on the Mount of Olives. And here's what he says, his final teaching. But when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit upon his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered in his presence and he will separate the people as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will place the sheep at his right and the goats at his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by the father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me a drink. I was a stranger and you invited me into your home. I was naked and you gave me clothing. I was sick and you cared for me. I was in prison and you visited me. Then the righteous ones will reply, Lord, when did we ever see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink or a stranger and show you hospitality or naked and give you clothing? When did we ever see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will say, I tell you the truth. When you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you were doing it to me. Then the king will turn to those on the left and say, Away with you, you cursed ones, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his demons. For I was hungry and you didn't feed me. I was thirsty and you didn't give me a drink. I was a stranger and you didn't invite me into your home. I was naked and you didn't give me clothing. I was sick and in prison and you didn't visit me. Then they will reply, Lord, when did we ever see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison? and not help you, and he will answer. I tell you the truth. When you refuse to help the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you were refusing to help me. And they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous will go into eternal life. Woo! Some stuff from Jesus, huh? He comes out pretty strong finishing out his life. He's about to go be crucified, so he's probably like, I got nothing to lose or everything to lose, right? And so let's address the setting of the parable first, right? 
And then we'll, we'll crawl around in the details, right? Because here's, here's what Jesus is doing. He's telling this story. He's painting this picture for his disciples and he's using language very purposefully. Right? He's using language from the book of Daniel in the Old Testament. And I think it'll help us understand the connection that Jesus is making to all of this if we revisit the words from Daniel. So Daniel, he has this vision, this dream. And at one point in Daniel 7, 13 and 14, he says this. He says, as my vision continued that night, I saw someone like a son of man, which is why Jesus uses that language, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient one, capital A and capital O, right? Probably God, and was led into his presence. He was given authority, honor, and sovereignty over all the nations of the world. You see all the nations present again, right? So that every people, race, nation, and language would obey him. His rule is eternal. It will never end. His kingdom will never be destroyed. That's what Daniel had to say. You see what Jesus is doing. He's hearkening back to this vision that has actually been God's vision for people all along. And he's telling this story. He's referring to himself as the son of man. Again, giving himself his royal title. He's a king on his throne, he says. All the nations are gathered before him, every single person. But what Jesus does is he comes as a shepherd. Daniel has no picture of a shepherd, but Matthew telling his life about Jesus has been telling us what it means to be a shepherd, God all along. And so that's why we're here with these sheep and these goats. And we wanna know who are the sheep and who are the goats? Like I think if any of you, your first time even reading this, you immediately go, hold on, am I a sheep or am I a goat? Like that is, our, that is of our utmost concern at that moment in time. We gotta know which one am I? And quite honestly, my favorite part of this whole parable, it's, it's a wild parable, let's just admit that, right? There's a lot going on in this parable is that nobody actually knew if they were a sheep or a goat. Did you catch that? None of them actually knew. They all said to the king, hold on, when? When didn't we or when did we do that? They didn't know if they were a sheep or a goat in this parable. You know who knows? Only the shepherd knows. Which is kind of crazy too, because you're not sure what to do with that either, which is kind of the point of all of Jesus's parables is you're like, hold on, what are you trying to tell us, Jesus? And you have to think about it and pray about it and rest in it for days and days and days. And so only the shepherd knows, but there is a king here. It's a king shepherd. He's talking about his kingdom and he's separating out sheep and goats. He's finishing his public teaching. The whole gospel of Matthew has been about the kingdom of heaven, right? And the thing that Jesus says at the outset of his life is that he wants you to orient your lives where you would turn to him and receive the way of the kingdom. And so this is a final parable that paints for us a picture of this kingdom that Jesus has been announcing all along. What kind of kingdom is this? Like there's, there's three things that come forth in this painting of the kingdom in this parable, right? Jesus is indeed the king. So now there's like no question about it. 
We've reached the end of, of Matthew's gospel. There's no doubt about it. Historically, the people of God had assumed that God was a king. And now Jesus is like, and I am the son of man. I am the son of God. I am King Jesus. Here I am before you. What's interesting is that the language son of man literally just means human one. So he's flipping the whole thing on its head, right? Here he is in all his humanity, but all his divinity, the whole of what Jesus was from the beginning. And Jesus, the shepherd king, stands before the sheep and the goats to do what? What is he doing? It's a word we don't like, judging. Jesus is there to judge the sheep and the goats. And I wanna, I wanna do something that I think many of us struggle with where I, I, I break that picture down. Because if, if we hadn't said that Jesus was judging and I said, tell me what you think of Jesus, you would have named some beautiful things about Jesus. The way he loves, the way he cares, the way he meets us in the midst of whatever it is we're experiencing, all of these things about Jesus. And then the moment that he becomes the judge, it's as if he takes on a different image for us. This Jesus that we've trusted all along to love us as we are, to walk with us, to show us his way, shows up now as the judge. And I think our historical evangelical reading of this is to be afraid of this Jesus who's walked with us all this way. Jesus, the shepherd king, stands before the sheep to judge them. And I ask us the question, well, do you trust him? Do you trust this Jesus with that decision? The basis of his judgment though is pretty clear, right? Like he doesn't leave a, a lot to wonder about what he's making this judgment on. The whole world, right? All of the nations are there and they're being separated into sheep and goats. And some have done one thing and some have not done another thing. Jesus seems to be implying that we will be judged, all the nations, on the basis of how we treat people. Who are these people, though? He gives us five examples. He calls them the least of these, our brothers and sisters. And we have the hungry. How do we treat the hungry? Which, as you probably know, is a wide-ranging spectrum of people. Some barely live day to day. Some don't eat for days. Some can only eat terrible food for themselves. Like there is a range of the hungry. Jesus says, what about the thirsty? Which globally, that means something very different than it does for those of us gathered in this courtyard. Who are those who thirst? Maybe you thirst for one day. Maybe you thirst for a lifetime. Maybe the people and your village die daily from thirst. Jesus says, what about the stranger? The stranger that is the, the immigrant, the sojourner, the refugee. They have always been a priority for God's people. He says, how did you treat them? You have the naked or the unclothed. Who among you does not have enough? They have no shirt, one shirt, two shoes, whatever. It's something that's usually pretty visible to meet that need. And then he says, what about the prisoner or the sick? If you just take the US, we have the, the highest 
incarceration rate globally. So there's something going on there. There's probably somebody to visit, but there might be also something else to do. What we have here is that in the kingdom that Jesus has been proclaiming is that the choices we make here and now in this life have eternal consequences, but not just for us making the decision, reaching out to the least of these. It also has eternal implications for the least. If we do not step into those spaces as Jesus's people, then who will is often the question. Who will love them as Jesus loves them? How will they know that? How will anybody know that if we don't reach to those places? Love seems to be the basis of this judgment that Jesus is issuing. Jesus is the loving judge, which seems to be a juxtaposition a bit. Jesus is the loving judge who judges us on how we loved. Interesting, isn't it? So to name the tension, I think that this passage elicits, there's two tensions. One is about hell and the nature of hell, and I'll get there in a minute. But the other one is it seems to be that Jesus is implying the way in which you become saved is by what you do, right? So it's often been called a, a salvation of works as opposed to a salvation of grace. And this is why I set out at the beginning to say that not every parable holds the entirety of a systematic theology inside of it. I'm not sure that Jesus intends to erase what grace can do, but he certainly is setting out to highlight the work that is required of us. It seems to me that the gospel of Matthew is concerned with how the lack of obedience, right, that the things not done in justice and mercy have little to do with trying to earn salvation. That's not what he's going after. He's saying discipleship actually is evidenced by people who act in justice and in mercy, who love in an intentional certain way. Which begs the question, where is Jesus in all of this then? Because that kind of seems straightforward. But the way Jesus tells the story literally begins to flip it on its head again. Have you ever wanted to find Jesus? Just, have you ever, do you ever wish you could see Jesus? Like literally talk to him, hold him, hug him, have a meal with him, like the real Jesus in the flesh? Yeah, right? What Jesus is saying right here is now you actually know where to find him. You know how to do that. Every time you love the one who is hungry, who is thirsty, who is a stranger, who is naked, who is sick or in prison, you are actually meeting Jesus. That's what Jesus is saying. Indwelled within each of those people is the person of Jesus. What a thought. Klein Snodgrass, which is the best name anyone could ever have, he says it like this. He says, the son of man who will come in glory and judge the nations will himself be crucified. His judgment based on the treatment of the oppressed 
stems from his own solidarity with the oppressed. Anytime one is oppressed, Jesus stands in that place and you will find him there. This passage, right, focuses on the least for really good reason. Like, I mean, Jesus just says the same thing over and over again on a lot of levels, right? He says, this is, this is what I'm asking you to do. This is how you know you're doing it. They're like, Jesus, we didn't know it. He's like, well, this is how you know if you did or didn't do it. And he says it again, right? It's focused on the least for good reason. Because if people had known the identity of the king, they would have acted differently. If you'd have known that it was the king you were sharing a meal with, you would have treated him differently. That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying the king actually already is there holding that space. Kings we treat nicely, the little people we ignore, the least we ignore, which only shows more that we act from our own selfish motives. Compassion though, what Jesus is teaching us here has no other motive than meeting a need. It actually just springs from the identity of somebody shaped by their creator. It's an overflow of who we are. But what I think is so beautiful about what Jesus is doing here too, is that it's not just meeting the need of the least of these. It's meeting the need of the one who encounters the least of these because that's where we meet Jesus, the King. And it's more tangible than we think. I wanna tell you a short story about one time I chose to give somebody some water. And I'll do really hard to try not to make myself out to be the hero of this story. There's a common challenge for white men. All right, well, Brad, the story's about you, so just a second, okay? So... You're ruining the story, Brad. No. So, so this was about six years ago. I was, I was at, a, at a church downtown. I was working at a different church downtown. It was in the middle of the week and we closed up the church. We were leaving and I was shutting off all the lights and locking all the doors and that sort of thing. And, and I'd closed everything up and I was heading out. Uh, and, and I realized I hadn't checked a certain door uh, in the building. And so I walked over to the door to, to just make sure it was, was pulled shut. And and this, this friend of mine, which I guess now we know, he, I outed him and he outed himself at the same time. His name's Brad. And, uh, and, and Brad was, was sitting outside because that's where he'd been sleeping. And so I go out and I say hi to Brad and, and I bring him some water. And, and he, he asks for my business card. He's a smart guy. He's a smart guy, Brad. And, and I'm like, yeah, I mean, you can, sure, call me if you need something. I didn't know if I would ever see him again. And, and from that moment of, of handing him a water bottle, we, we formed this, this friendship that has lasted over these last six years. There's a lot more to it. Uh, and the, the things that, that Brad himself has endured um, and, and worked to overcome for that matter. But I tell you the story, not because of it's the one time I handed somebody a water bottle but because I'll never be the same after handing that person a water bottle. I've, I've never had a friend as loyal as Brad. I have lots of loyal friends, that's true. But the way in which this friendship became a friendship is unlike any other friendship that I've ever had. 
Nobody else calls me and tells me what they read in scripture that morning or how they wanna pray for me or how they wanna pray for my friends. He should, I mean, this that we're here together speaks to whatever it is that God's up to in this world that he desires to do in and through all of us. And now Brad's friends with my friends and I'm friends with Brad's friends and we pray for each other's friends and we have meals together and holidays together. And it's like, what? That's, that's what Jesus is saying here. That's what salvation really is, is that you'd be saved together. That's the beautiful picture of all of this. So I think the question is, what kind of person are we? Are we characterized by the love and mercy evidenced in Jesus's kingdom, which is what faith is really all about, right? Or are we characterized by no concern of those in need? There's no question about salvation of grace or salvation of works. The reality is salvation requires acts such as these. Jesus modeled it for us his entire life and says with his last teaching, hey, make your life about it. And you might get saved in the process. What we do or what we don't do has consequences but they're not always like consequences that we think. Like so often we read that and we're like, if I don't do this, I suffer a consequence of eternal torment and a fiery pit. Like that's what we think this is happening. And I think that's what's so tangible to my encounter with my friend Brad is that the consequences would have been, I would have missed all that that friendship has brought my life. And so would Brad if I hadn't brought that also. The consequences we try to make so out here in some other life, in some other world, in some other place, and you actually live in them right now because the things we do and don't do as humans actually matter. That's the beautiful thing that Jesus keeps saying about his kingdom is it's here now. It matters now what you do. You can live it now. It does matter in the age to come too, but it also matters now. And it seems to me that a person can't claim the identity of a disciple, a disciple of Jesus without evidencing it in acts of justice and mercy. Again, it's not an entire system of theology, but this is what Jesus is saying to us. And the obvious truth seems to be that the New Testament writers, they, they can't imagine that a person who's brought into association with Jesus would live without having love evidence in their lives. Like it's just so mind boggling to them, they can't even imagine it. So here's what I wanna do. I just wanna create a little space, if you will, for some self-evaluation. I want you to be able to ask yourself and ask the Lord, who are these among us and how will I join Jesus? How will I meet Jesus with those? So what I invite you to do is I just want you to be quiet for a moment. Just want you to be still. Would you close your eyes? And would you just envision before you the person of Jesus? Put that image before you the king, the shepherd, the son of man. 
And hear these words that he says. And the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you invited me into your home. I was naked and you gave me clothing. I was sick and you cared for me. I was in prison and you visited me. Imagine meeting Jesus in all of those places. Then Jesus finishes the story that we already heard in Matthew 26, one and two. He closes with this, if you will. When Jesus had finished saying all these things, which was from the moment that they had sat down on the Mount of Olives and they asked for the sign, finishes teaching all these things and he says to his disciples, as you know, Passover begins in two days and the son of man will be handed over to be crucified. Jesus joins those who've always been oppressed and on the margins as he goes to the cross as one who's taken outside the city and killed. Will you follow him? Will you go where he goes? As the band comes up, I want you just to hold that question before you. Let it sit for a moment. Where is Jesus leading me? Ask that question as well. As you just continue to sit in a, in a place of reflection too, let me, let me just read this over the top of us, if you will. Dorothy Day was this woman who, who gave her life for the least of these. And she knew that attempts to create a, a better world without being a people capable of the works of mercy could not help but betray Jesus's response to his disciples' question of what sign will there be of Jesus's coming in the end of the age. This sign, she seems to imply, is that they have the time to feed the hungry, clothe the naked, give drink to the thirsty, welcome the stranger, care for the sick and those in prison. Moreover, such work will be offensive to those in power who claim to rule as benefactors of the poor and hungry. A people shaped by the practice of the works of mercy in Jesus's name will be a people capable of seeing through those who claim to need power to do good, but in fact just need power 
Great injustice is perpetuated in the name of justice. Great evil is done because it is said that time is short and there needs to be a response to this or that crisis. But she closes out and says, Christians live after the only crisis that matters, which means that Jesus has given us all the time in the world to visit him in the prisons of this world. But we go where he's leading. For more resources or information about Kaleo, please visit our website at kaleophx.com or follow us on social media. If this episode has been helpful to you, let us know or share it with someone you know.